Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. When most people work out, they jump right from a resting state called zone one cardio to zone three cardio. But in skipping over zone two cardio altogether, they miss out on a significant range of benefits to their health, fitness, and overall well-being. Here to unpack why you need to make the relatively easy yet hugely beneficial form of exercise that is zone two cardio a big part of your life is Alex Viata, a hybrid athlete and coach. We spend the first 20 minutes of this conversation discussing the physiological science of what cardio zones are and what happens in the body as you move from one zone to the next. From there, we turn to the more accessible and practical elements of getting into zone two cardio. Alex shares the easiest way to know if you're in zone two, and we discuss how it can improve your heart health, metabolism, sleep, and weight loss, as well as enhance athletic performance, whether you're into endurance sports or powerlifting. We then get into the amount of zone two cardio you should be getting each week and how to get it including Alex's take on the ever-controversial elliptical machine. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash zone two. All right, Alex Viata, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much, Brett. Pleasure to be here. So you are the founder of Complete Human Performance. This is an educational website where you provide education and courses on physical fitness, nutrition, but you also provide coaching for triathletes, powerlifters. Uh, you've done some coaching for special operations guys. Let's talk about a bit about your background. How did you end up doing this where you're coaching not only triathletes, but powerlifters, but also there's powerlifting triathletes as well. What, what's the story there? So yeah, so I, I guess the story there, I'd have to have to back up quite a bit, and I'll I'll try to keep this uh, brief and and to the relevant points. So you know, back when I first started getting back into uh, strength training, shortly after college, I was very much of the uh, you know powerlifting strength at all costs mentality, and it wasn't until about 2007 when I first got talked into running a 5K. You know, and, and really coming close to uh, having the you know the walls close in on me in my first training run and realizing I was out of shape, uh, that I really realized that there was you know kind of this gaping hole in my fitness, and it was really the process of you know going from a powerlifting background, strength training background, to wanting to learn how to not just not just be cardiovascularly you know survivable, but actually be really cardiovascularly fit, and. Kind of at the time, and I mean, we're talking, you know, kind of uh, mid 2000s, the, the, the strength training and endurance training communities were very much split. You know, there's, uh, there was the, the whole strength conceit of, you know, cardio is anything more than five reps. And you go into endurance training, and the, very much the mindset among a lot of coaches back in that day was still that strength training was, uh, you know, something you could do. And the strength training programs were absolutely horrible. I mean, I remember going through my USAT certification, USA Triathlon, and the strength training was, you know, we're, we're talking about people doing body weight lunges for sets of 20 to 25. It was really bad. And part of that whole process, that experience, and realizing that, you know, if I wanted to be a, a powerlifter who was really good at running, I, I wasn't going to be able to talk to any powerlifting coaches about running, and I wasn't going to be able to talk to any running coaches about powerlifting. I kind of had to develop a lot of this on my own. And that was actually part of what went into the whole, uh, you know, when I, when I wrote The Hybrid Athlete, that was part of what kind of prompted that entire concept, that hybrid training concept was being able to, you know, apply elite level endurance training methodology to powerlifters and using, you know, using the the really depth of understanding of the opposite, you know, quote unquote opposite sport to really whittle out and get rid of all the noise and nonsense and prescribe to strength athletes what is the the absolute minimum most effective dose of endurance training to get results and vice versa. 
So really taking lessons from the opposite side of the aisle, so to speak, and using that to optimize training for everybody. And that methodology, uh, you know, honestly, when I, uh, in 2012, 2013, before, before the book came out, and then in, in 2014, 2015, uh, really, really caught a lot of people's attention, I think. There are a lot of people who, they love strength training, they love the process, but at the time they were going, I don't, I don't like the fact that I gave up all of this running or, you know, I'm a, I'm a power lifter who's been doing this for years and I feel a little beat up. I want to try something different. I don't know. Maybe I want to do a triathlon or something. That's what really got a lot of attention from a lot of different groups kind of all across the map. And it was really just a, a real process of being able to having the privilege of working with these athletes, but also speaking to their coaches and, you know, speaking to triathlon teams and special forces and all these other groups and learning from them. And learning their best practices and coming back to apply it to my practice overall. So it's really been just kind of this, uh, you know, way too late for a long story short, but talking to all of these people from all across different, different walks of life and different backgrounds and trying to take the best practices from each one and put them into my practice. Yes, yeah, so you, you've broken down that barrier that stands between strength and endurance. Because look, I come from a strength training background too. That's my, my main focus. And yet you always hear, well, you, know, you can't do endurance stuff because your cardio, that's just going to get in the way of your gangs and your recovery yeah, exactly. from your, your session. But I think that's starting to change. A lot of people who are in the strength side of things, they're starting to see the importance of the cardio element. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So the reason I wanted to bring you on is because you're a big proponent of what's called zone two cardio. In the past year, I've gotten really into this because yeah. like you, I, you know, I was doing a lot of strength training, heavy pulling, but neglected my cardio and I just felt kind of crummy. And I thought, you know, this is like, there's an element of fitness that I'm, I'm lacking. So I've gotten really into it Excellent. and I want to see your, bring your expertise into this before we get into the benefits of zone two cardio and how to mm-hmm. do it. We should probably start off with what we mean by cardio zones. I think people have probably heard about this. If you go to a treadmill at a Globo gym, you see like the zones that you can get into. Uh, so what are cardio zones scientifically? So yeah, this is really interesting because I think even just trying to trying to define them, you you sort of get into some of the some of the question marks that still even exist in the endurance training community. So the entire idea behind these zones, and there are the first of all, what makes it confusing is there is more than one system of zones. There is a zone system from one through four. There are ones from one through five. There's I've seen ones out there from one to seven. But when we typically talk about zone two. What the heart rate zones or what the training zones roughly correspond to are various metabolic shifts that happen in the body as you progress from one level of intensity to the next. As you're training, as you're running, as you're cycling, as you're doing anything else, the body is compensating and basically utilizing the appropriate energy sources and undergoing the appropriate hormonal and neurological response to achieve whatever objective you have set for it with regards to actual stress, with regards to actual stimulus. When we talk about zone two cardio, we're referring to a very specific sort of range of physiological stressors that the body is responding in a certain way to a certain level of intensity that roughly corresponds to the the point just before a few metabolic shifts are made before you progress into the higher zone. So when we talk about zone two, it's not really about heart rate. You know, when you look at a lot of cardio machines or you look at a lot of you know personal training certifications, they say, well, zone two is 68 to 75% of your max heart rate. That's more correlative. Really, zone two is referring to that period of time before your body begins to make that shift past its first ventilatory threshold. 
which really represents the point at which you start to get accumulation of a lot of metabolites. You get a shift in blood pH. Uh, you get a you know, change in the amount of uh, lactate typically found in the bloodstream. So it's really, if we think about cardiovascular training zones, consider them inflection points where the body is kind of progressing to the next level of energy generation. I think that's the best way to put it. Okay, let's talk about that sort of that kind of a walkthrough summary of energy generation. So our body to live and function, it has to use it has to use energy. And depending on how intense we are doing stuff, it's going to use different sources of energy. So let's just start like from like lowest, like, you know, zone one, and then kind of work our way up. So like when we're in zone one, we're just kind of sitting here, maybe taking a, a slow walk. What sort of what's our primary energy source? Yeah, so the the primary energy source in zone one is still, you know, you're basically looking at fat stores, fatty acids. Now, at all stages of energy generation, I always think of them as like kind of dimmer switches, you know, that's, it's not like you you only start using your highest intensity energy sources when you're performing one rep maxes, like, at any point, our body is using pretty much all available energy sources, just to varying degrees. When we're sitting here, predominantly, we are engaged, we are, we are getting all the energy we need from fat stores. We have plenty to, you know, kind of meet the energetic or the rate of energy consumption. The amount of glucose we're burning is pretty minimal. And the amount that's being actually converted and going down the lactate pathways is even smaller. So zone one basically represents the point up to a level of effort where we are burning almost exclusively fatty acids and we are utilizing nearly zero uh, anaerobic processes, no anaerobic fermentation, the lactate system is barely being used, et cetera. So by far and away, we're talking, you know, 95%, I'm sure the number is different, 95% fat burning, nearly zero metabolic stress. Gotcha. And then we're also, you're, the body's using oxygen to create yeah. that that energy. And the energy too, it's, it's, it's ATP is what it's called. Absolutely. Yes. So basically our body is utilizing oxygen. It's utilizing uh, fatty acid lipolysis. Uh, you know, we're, we're breaking down fat and we're using that all to basically, again, you know, oxygen is the terminal acceptor in the electron transport chain. It is a very efficient system. We generate a lot of energy per quantity of fat used. It's, it's great. Our, our bodies are, are very happy here. We can do this indefinitely. When we get to zone two, so we go from zone one to zone two, you know, we just are we just like upping the amount of oxidation going on? We are to a certain extent. Now, as we continue to increase in zones, what starts to happen is it's not just that the body is in aggregate doing more work. We're getting a lot of changes that happen at the local level in muscular tissue. Even as every muscle contracts, it briefly contracts, it briefly reduces blood flow to the muscle at the moment of contraction. And then, you know, when it relaxes, obviously there's more, but overall the energetic levels begin to rise. And when we're engaged in zone two cardio, so to speak, the oxygen levels or the oxygen requirements suddenly begin to spike. And what's going to happen is the body actually, you're going to notice when you progress from zone one to zone two, you actually start breathing more heavily, not necessarily faster, but the depth of respiration increases the amount of the ratio of shallow breaths to deep breaths. Cause you know, when we're all sitting here at rest, most of the time we breathe shallow and every now and then we take a deeper breath. That ratio begins to change until we're taking almost exclusively deep breaths. We are still primarily aerobic in terms of energy systems, but there absolutely is on a local level, a certain amount of utilization of anaerobic systems. In other words, a little bit of the you know fermentation going on, the, the lactate systems becoming involved just to sort of generate that little bit of energy. 
And so zone two basically represents that point at which the metabolic demand is rising, but oxygen and fat stores are still, and you know, and obviously glucose stores as well, but aerobic systems are still responsible for the vast majority of our energy generation. Okay. And as we increase intensity, we shift to zone three. What's happening next? At zone three, what happens is you actually cross a point called the the VT1, the ventilatory threshold one. And this is actually going to go a little bit into how we determine these zones. You'll notice at the VT1, your rate of respiration begins to increase. And one of the things that's driven by, uh, you know, there are various, you know, chemoreceptors and and everything else in the body that detect the sudden change in blood pH that's caused from an aggregate rise in carbon dioxide. That basically means that CO2 levels in the blood basically your body, the muscle cells are generating, they're utilizing energy at a faster rate than your, your standard you know, aerobic systems can supply that. So what starts to happen is your rate of respiration increases, your heart rate begins to increase, but we're already tapping more into kind of the anaerobic systems. We're tapping more into those fermentation systems. And the body is already at that point in this kind of delicate dance where it's not really able to sustain this indefinitely. We're already, again, anaerobic systems, when we don't use oxygen, they're a little bit less efficient. So the body is kind of on this slow path at that point towards a loss of ability to meet the energy requirements. So zone two, you can't really do forever. Other things will break down, but you can do zone two for an exceedingly long period of time because it's so sustainable. Crossing that ventilatory threshold represents, again, a slow accumulation of these metabolites and a gradual slow decrease in our body's ability to sustain a given level of intensity. And we're starting to make that shift from using fatty acids to using more, like starting to use glucose more to get that ATP. Exactly. And, And not just using glucose, but also using glucose in anaerobic metabolism, which is actually less efficient. We generate less ATP or less energy per unit of glucose when we're do when we're processing it through anaerobic systems than when we do when we're processing it through aerobic systems. So, you know, it was kind of likened a little bit to like afterburners in a jet. Yes, we can produce a lot of energy that way, but we're using four times as much fuel, you know, per unit of energy produced. Oh, another difference between zone two and zone one and then like zone three. With zone two, zone one, when you're using fatty acids and oxygen, the mitochondria in your cells are creating the ATP. And I think in glycolysis, we're using glucose to create ATP. That occurs in your cytosol. It doesn't, it doesn't occur in the mitochondria. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. And a lot of cases, like say a lot of the lactate producing systems can occur in exactly in other systems. So this is no longer strictly a mitochondrial based uh, process. And in fact, again, the process of conversion of lactate back to glucose or back to glycogen is you know much more systemic. This is less infinitely sustainable by those organelles. Yes. All right. So zone three, you're starting to use more glucose. What happens in zone four? Is it just that you're just using more and more glucose? Like when do you start, when do you start using other energy sources? So when we actually cross into zone four, that's where it gets a little fuzzier. The the line between zone three and zone four is as some people liken this to the ventilatory threshold too, it's when we actually start to get such a high utilization of these anaerobic energy systems that you start to really get, I wouldn't say an uncontrolled, but you get a steady accumulation of metabolites. In other words, the body is not clearing these metabolites. It is not able to sustain this level of intensity without an eventual crash. So we're using more anaerobic fermentation. We are getting to the point where the body is not able to keep up with the given level of work 
And as a result, the, you know, the, you know, for example, the, the lactate levels, which are used kind of uh, go off into the stratosphere. And this is generally considered a level that the individual will rapidly fatigue at. In other words, there is constant accumulating fatigue throughout an interval. Whereas zone three, uh, let's say a gifted marathon runner can run the entire marathon in their equivalent of a zone three. If they cross into a zone four, they'll probably begin cracking. Now, of course, for a marathon runner, the difference between zone three and zone four is actually very small, but that's that's a different story. But basically, at that point, when you cross into what we typically consider a zone four, that's unsustainable. We are using a lot more of very short-term energy systems, and we're using heavy amounts of anaerobic glycolysis, which causes rapid fatigue. And also, it, when you like zone four and like zone five, if that exists, there's a debate about that. You start using creatine and like recycling ATP, basically, right? So it's like mm-hmm. your when your body uses ATP to create energy, it loses a a phosphate or something, and then cre- yes. they, the body's like, okay, we can use that used up. It's called ADP now, and then we'll we'll take creatine that's in the system, and we can make ATP really fast, but it's not very efficient. Right, exactly. Because what happens at lower intensity is ATP is constantly being generated. We're generating a huge amount of ATP per mole, or let's just say per gram of fat, we're generating a huge amount. And that's great when we're at rest because there's so much fat in our body, relatively speaking. We've got the equivalent of you know tens of thousands of calories of work that our fat can do. When it comes to glucose, when it comes to glycogen, we have much less. Our liver only really has about you know 400 to 500 calories worth of work it can do, whereas our muscles have several thousand. So even so, if we think about it over like, let's say a marathon, we're probably, if we had to do that on strictly glucose, we would burn through our systems, but you know, we would burn through that very quickly. Of course, if we were to do that even faster and go through a process of fermentation, Though that let's say our let's say our muscles are capable of doing 2,500 calories worth of work with the glucose that's in them. That's through aerobic systems. If we do that through anaerobic systems, we're really only capable of doing anywhere between five and 600 calories worth of work with that same fuel. So not only as we go up in energy systems are we getting, are you know, are we looking at smaller pools of energy? We are also looking at on aggregate the body being able to do less work with the stores we have available. Okay. So just to recap here, zone one, zone two, you're primarily using fatty acids. You're using oxygen, Mm -hmm. mitochondria to create the energy or ATP you need to do whatever. As you shift into zone three, you start using more glucose. And I think, I think you you made the point, this isn't like either or like, this is sort of like, it's a dimmer. I like that analogy. And then as you shift into zone four, it's more glucose and maybe even using recycling previously stored ATP. Do you think there's a zone five? Like what's your take on that? So a lot of that really depends. And you can already tell that since everything is a dimmer switch, we're talking about pretty fuzzy definitions here. And I think that's actually where a lot of confusion comes in. And I think something that uh, people probably want to reiterate is how complicated this actually is. It's like there's no definitive switch between zone two and zone three, like even though we like to say there is. There's no definitive switch between zone three and zone four. Some people include a zone five and say, well, that represents the pure alactic systems, as they call it. We're talking about such a high level of intensity that we We are just using the ATP CP systems, for example. So that's just super high intensity sprints of 10 seconds or under. That's, you know, some people like to differentiate that. I don't particularly find it very useful because I think the entire purpose of planning in zones is to look at approximately, you know, stimulus, how long an athlete can sustain it and what it means metabolically. If you start to get into zone five, you're almost looking at something that's sort of akin to higher rep strength training. 
or explosive training, and it's it's not really a useful figure. So I only tell people to really worry about one through four. So I think that's a good background of science. We geeked out there. Yeah. Let's let's start. <laughs> let's dig into this. Like when most people do cardio, what they think of as cardio, so it's like a run, or maybe they're doing a body weight workout. What zone do they typically end up in? You know, most people when they're doing cardio, if they just decide to go out for a run, they are usually sitting right in zone three. And I think that that really is probably at, at the heart of what a lot of we want to discuss today is how easy it is or how often people think that they are not getting a cardiovascular workout unless they are exhibiting all the signs of actually being in that zone three. Yeah, I think a lot of people when they think workout, you got to be, you have to, you got to hurt, bro. It's got to be, yeah, it's got to be struggle and like out of breath and super winded. Like, why do you think the zone two gets the short shrift, particularly by weekend warrior type athletes? Because I, I think if you talk to professional athletes, they understand the importance of that sort of zone yeah. two stuff. What's going on with just the regular Joe who wants to exercise? You know, you know, it's such a good question too, because I think that's, I think a lot of it just comes down to based on what our concept of exercise actually is. And I, I think one of the reasons why this is tough is if you're a, if you're a high level athlete and you're doing zone two work, you're still running, you're still running pretty quick. Uh, you know, I always talk about the story back when I uh, used to train, I used to run around, uh, you know, Duke university and because they have a sports performance lab there, they would sometimes have a lot of Kenyan runners come down. Uh, you know, again, some of the best runners in the world, you know, best best mid-distance runners that uh, probably have ever lived. And it's funny because I used to run the trails down there and these guys would pass me at probably two minutes per mile faster than what my, you know, high zone three, low zone four pace. And they would be having relaxed conversations the entire time. And I think for some of us who don't realize how good elite athletes are, we think, okay, these guys are going for an easy run. They're going fast. If I am not at the very least going for a fast jog, I'm probably not getting anything out of this whatsoever. If I'm not sweating, if I'm not working hard, if I'm not doing any of that, how can this possibly be exercise? What am I getting out of this? And I think that's a really, it's a really dangerous mindset. And honestly, when I first got back into running back in like 2007, that's part of what caused me so much harm to both my lifting and my running is that that's a lot of work. And I think for most people, they don't, they want to see, be seen as doing exercise. They don't want to think, well, if I'm going for a fast walk, oh, well, that's not, that's not training. You know, anybody can do that. I, you know, I want to go out there and work. And not realizing that probably going for a fast walk for them represents zone two. And that's probably what they should be doing. And also, I think that something that contributes to that is just like the fitness literature, right? You pick up men's health right. and it talks about HIIT workouts. Everyone's got to be doing HIIT workouts. And oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I can't tell you when. Again, like you know, back when I when I first started uh, first started doing all this stuff, uh, hit was everything, and uh, you know the the whole idea was uh, hell. I remember uh, you know working with a lot of strongman athletes and, and talking to them because again, you know, again early on in in my career, I was talking to other powerlifters. Well, what do you do for cardio and strongman? What do you do for cardio? Going, oh yeah, I push heavy sleds and you know tire flips and you know that's that's my cardio right there. And you know, obviously we we know that's that's still good stuff, but. To them, that was kind of the minimum for cardio. Anything easier than that is just a waste of time. Oh, so let's dig into more about zone two. So how do we figure out what our zone two is? How do we how do we know? Because you mentioned so so you said like zones are more about the energy sources that we're using, the metabolites, the uh, the changes in hormones that's happening in our body. So how do we figure out if we're in zone two or not? 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because there are a lot of systems out there. Some people use heart rate. And while that's good for some, the problem with using heart rate is, first of all, everyone's max heart rate is different. Uh, the whole 220 minus age or any one of those systems are really only good for about the middle 60 to 70% of the population. And even then, there's kind of a plus or minus eight or seven standard deviation on that. And what I mean by that is, let's say with 220 minus age, it tells me my maximum heart rate should be 178. Well, that could be plus or minus eight. So my max heart rate could be anywhere between 186 and 170. If I'm trying to calculate 70% of that, that's going to give me a crazy number. So I tell people, forget about the heart rate zones. Don't worry about that. Some people say, well, you should use a lactate meter and check that. That doesn't work either. The easiest way I tell people is, look, when we talk about zone two, we're talking about a metabolic shift. So let's find the most obvious metabolic shift that happens with the most profound impact that you can see. And that would be your rate of breathing. So when I have people do a zone two test, which I also call a VT1 test, again, talking about the first ventilatory threshold, what I have them do is basically just continue to first start out at a walk and then every minute increase their pace ever so slightly, tracking their heart rate and tracking their pace until they get to a point where they can no longer speak a 15 to 20 word sentence without interruption. When they get to that point, it represents that inflection point where the rate of respiration is increasing, which corresponds to a change in blood pH. And the reason that's so accurate is because that change in blood pH right there and that change in the need to breathe and respiration rate almost perfectly corresponds to those various metabolic shifts that represent the shift from zone two to zone three. So basically, when you can't carry on a conversation is legitimately when you're making pretty much the biggest metabolic shifts out of zone two. It is the easiest way to determine it. And it's ironic. It's actually, interestingly, one of the most accurate, even in a lab setting. So the talk test. Is the talk test. The talk that's test. it. So yeah, with the heart rate, I've seen different stuff. And what's, what's confusing about the heart rate thing about zone two is that you'll see different percentages. Right. So I've seen one, like the one that I've seen a lot is 70 to 80% of your maximum heart rate is zone two. Right. Then I've also seen like, well, no, that's too high. It's like, it's actually <laughs> 50 to 65 yeah. What I've done to hone in on my zone two intensity is I did the the estimate based on your age. Yep. And then I, I used the talk test to refine it. So like the estimate based right. on my age kind of gave me like a, a ballpark to be you know next to. And so I'll use my Apple Watch and I'll get there. And I think right now it's like 140 is like for me 70, 80%. Yep. And then if I'm if I can still talk, then I'm 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 in the right spot. That's how I've done exactly. it. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. And that's it. That's, that is by far the best way to do it. The, the heart rate will kind of give you that starting ballpark. And from there, you, you very much, it, again, it's, and I think that kind of drives home the point though, it takes a little bit of trial and error. You actually have to go out there and you actually have to read your body a little bit and say, okay, well, it, it, is this working for me? Because again, the other thing is each one of us has a different heart rate reserve in different zones, like difference in, in heart structure, uh, difference in, you know, there's so many other factors that can be involved in changing where these zones are that I, I think the way you're doing it, the way you're articulating is perfectly right. What's your thoughts? And one thing that I've, I've heard on the, some like, like a researcher that uh, does a lot about zone two, and he says to get the most benefit from zone two, you want to get as close to the upper end of zone two and stay there as possible. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I would say that's pretty accurate. It's, you know, it's, again, we're, we're talking about dimmer switches here, but if you're, it's a little bit like saying when you're weight training, it's going, okay, well, what's the difference between, you know, one rep in reserve and two reps in reserve? If we're looking at like, say, an effective reps model. And by that, I mean, like, you know, obviously we, we don't want to train to failure. Let's, let's talk about zone two is training less than failure. 
obviously the the closer we get to that threshold the the better the more work we can do per unit of time you know without getting to the point of diminishing returns so going much below that vt1 threshold i think it's tempting to sometimes back off a little bit too much as well and go a little bit too easy so I think the take-home here is we want to make that conscious decision to operate as close to that ventilatory threshold or that zone two threshold as possible. Otherwise, you are. You're leaving a little bit out there on the table every time. And again, the purpose of zone two is not to say go out and be lazy. It's saying control your throttle. And that means, of course, don't go too easy either because then you're probably not getting much of a training stimulus. So yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, I want to throw another shout out to the Apple Watch. They got a new feature now when you do your exercises. It'll actually show you like what zone you're in. I don't know okay. if you've seen this and it'll actually have like this arrow and it'll be like, you're at the bottom end of zone two. And then it'll like, it'll start getting closer to the, it'll start shifting and then it'll tell you, well, now you're in zone three. It's again, That's great. it's not super accurate, but it, it gives you an idea. It's, it's nice to have a, a like a, that, that number there to help you hone in on it. And, and, you know, I, I just got to say from a, from a personal level, at first I, I resisted a lot of wearables and a lot of devices, and now I use them so heavily in my coaching. And I think for a while there, I, I felt like people were relying on them too much. But what I really like now about a lot of the feedback that they give is they do force a lot of people to be a lot more in tune with what they're doing. So rather than just going, okay, I'm just going to go out for a run and zone out, which can be good for you sometimes, don't get me wrong. But having that sort of feedback and being able to be a little bit more deliberate in how you construct your training, it's really caused a lot of people to pay more attention to what they're doing. And I think that's a great thing. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. And now back to the show. Okay, we've talked about what goes on in zone two. We talked about how to know if you're in zone two. Let's start talking benefits of zone two because people are like, well, what's the big deal? Why should I do this? So how does zone two uh, improve metabolism? So, I, I mean, I, I think the, the benefits of zone two, you can pretty much almost say they're synonymous with exercise in general because it's, it's just such a great way to get 95% of all the vaunted benefits of, of any sort of cardiovascular training while minimizing a lot of the downsides. So, as far as metabolism goes, I mean, we're looking at a whole range of things. We're looking at the same improvements in uh, nutrient partitioning and same positive effects on uh, you know, insulin sensitivity and you know, glucose disposal, all of these things absolutely play a factor. And the, you know, as you engage in zone two, you are actually upregulating a lot of the uh, mitochondrial enzymes and in fact, your entire mitochondrial profile to actually more efficiently burn energy anaerobically. We're looking at, you know, huge benefits to glucose disposal. We're looking at huge benefits again to just, again, our ability to actually perform more work, you know, on an hourly basis than we would have in the past. So, even the, the quality of our meat is improved because we can be more active, because our heart pumps more efficiently. Our mitochondria are actually generating more ATP at rest or have the ability to do so, which allows us to be more active in general with less cost. Metabolically, it lets us even get more out of our weight training sessions. We can increase the density of our weight training sessions because we're recovering faster in between each individual set, which is, I think, something we don't take into account. If I'm doing a weight training program at all, if I can take a little bit less rest time in between our sets, I can potentially do more sets. I can potentially do the same amount of work in less time, giving me more time to do other things. Overall, it allows for a higher level of activity at a similar level of aggregate stress. And I can't think of a single downside to that. Yeah. And I think I've read research that whenever you do zone two at like that upper end of zone two, your body starts like in a response to that, it's like a stress, right? And so your body adapts. And so one thing yeah. is, so your, your mitochondria gets more efficient, but then your cells actually start producing more mitochondria. 
And so you're able to produce even more energy, which gives you all those benefits you just talked about. Exactly, exactly. Like I said, a mitochondrial profiles, which is not just the enzymes in the mitochondria, but it's the number of mitochondria as well. It's it's a profound, profound difference. I mean, you're basically making every single cell a lot more efficient, a lot more capable of generating energy. And, uh, you know, honestly, it reduces a whole host of other things. Like, for example, there's less oxidative stress because we're able to metabolize energy more efficiently in the oxidative system. We're looking at less metabolite production at any given level of intensity. So we're looking at the same daily activities causing us less stress, less hormonal stress, less oxidative stress because we do a lot of zone two cardio. Uh, let's talk about zone two and cardiovascular health. What's going on there? Sure. So it, again, it's got a lot of the same benefits that we typically associate with cardio, you know, bigger stroke volume, better contractile, you know, less, uh, you know, ejection fraction, which is the percentage of blood that's actually pumped out goes up. One of the best things about zone two cardio though, is the increase in, in cardiac preload, or what is called eccentric hypertrophy of the heart. So one of the most important things when we look at the heart muscle is not when we, when we work the heart, when we train the heart, it's not just that the heart gets stronger. Concentric hypertrophy of the heart is basically strengthening and thickening of the walls of especially the left ventricle to allow the heart to pump harder and pump more blood out on every contraction. That's not the whole picture, though. See, the heart actually becomes more efficient when it, it actually takes more blood in. So when we think about it, after the heart pumps and now it's you know, re-expanding and relaxing, what zone two cardio does by increasing the overall rate of blood circulation is you're actually increasing the amount of blood flowing into the heart. And zone two cardio is right in that sweet spot where that quote-unquote preload that allows the heart to actually take in the optimal amount of blood actually causes the heart muscle to stretch a little bit. The more eccentric hypertrophy, which effectively refers to the flexibility of the heart, the more of that we get, the more efficient the heart becomes. And not only does the heart become more efficient, but we also alleviate some of the issues that come from excessive concentric hypertrophy, which can include things like oh, changes in uh, signal propagation through the heart. So basically what I mean is this. If all we do is high-intensity work, we are doing a lot of, like let's say, almost muscle building, bodybuilding for the heart. But by doing so much of that without doing enough lower intensity work, we're not also doing everything we can for the preload, for the elasticity and flexibility of the heart. Doing zone two work allows our heart to beat more efficiently. It allows us to pump more blood per contraction. And it's also extremely good for the overall, I have another way of saying like signal quality within the heart muscle itself. So it's a little bit like if you if you go too hard all the time, it's like trying to you know do a bike pump too quickly. It's not efficient, right? Or it's like trying to pull a rower too quickly. Anything where the optimum rate of cycle is not super fast. If the heart is doing nothing but pumping really hard against like contracted muscles because all you're doing is sprinting and your muscles are you know working super hard, you're not going to get those same benefits to preload and elasticity that you get from the lower intensity work. So for cardiovascular health, it really represents a sort of critical part to the puzzle that you're actually missing out on if you do nothing but high intensity work. Does that you know, increase in volume of blood in the heart, does that trickle down to other parts of the vascular system like arteries, veins, capillaries? 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that that increase in vascular elasticity is actually a big part of it as well, because that takes place pretty much across the entire system. You know, because arteries are not arteries are already fairly strong. They're they're muscular vessels. They're 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 fairly strong. But again, if we are simply contracting the heart really hard against occluded vasculature, like let's say I'm contracting my quads really hard because I'm doing a set of squats or I'm doing a set of sprints, my heart is really pumping hard against that. The arteries are you know contracting basically to try to force that blood into that working muscle. That's not always ideal. The elasticity allowing for the constant blood flow and, you know, basically allowing the, you know, increasing capillary perfusion, increasing the number of capillaries and blood vessels and actually doing everything it can to reduce that back pressure a little bit actually does improve arterial compliance. Or in other words, that is just one other measure of overall heart health and artery and cardiovascular system health again, potentially reducing the likelihood of you know, future vascular disease. So it's extremely important. Yeah, one thing I've noticed too with the sort of a metric I've seen is that, that my cardiovascular health has been improving since I started zone two is my resting heart rate has been going down since I've started. That's good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, especially because, you know, doing a lot of zone two work as well, just in terms of even the autonomic nervous system is nowhere near as stressful. Because it's, you know, it actually, it does, obviously you're improving your heart health and the amount of blood pumped per, per contraction, which all lowers your resting heart rate, but also it really helps shift the autonomic nervous system balance a little bit more parasympathetic when you're at rest, which can also do wonders for your ability to relax, lower your resting heart rate, sleep better, all those other things. On a similar note, is there any research about zone two helping with mood disorders like depression or anxiety? You know, that's that's interesting because I think it's it's difficult to test and it's difficult to isolate zone two directly from a lot of other cardiovascular activity or a lot of other cardiovascular training uh, because pretty much all exercise does help with a lot of these things. What's interesting and I think where we have to start to find correlates is zone two's effect on things again like sleep quality and like the lower incidence of sleep disruptions because one of the challenges with exercise, particularly to treat anything from mood disorders to depression or anything else, is that exercise has its own set of stressors. And if people are already dealing with, you know, some form of depression or mood disorders or sleep disorders or anything else, exercise certainly has positive effects, but it can also do things like compromise sleep quality if done at too high intensity, or it can, you know, create its own level of stressors. It can create its own, you know, high amount of sympathetic drive during the exercise itself. The nice thing about zone two cardio is both kind of theoretically and in certainly preliminary research I've seen, it does seem to be able to convey a lot of the benefits of exercise on various mood disorders, depression, et cetera, but without a lot of the potential costs to overall individual stress. So again, it's it's sort of that sweet spot where you're getting the benefits of a lot of this exercise without a lot of the potential cost. So in aggregate, it represents a great intervention for anyone, again, dealing with issues like uh, depression or distraction or anything else. There are also a couple of other interesting benefits to doing things like running outside. I think, you know, talking anything from, you know, the, the phenomena of ocular flow to just, uh, you know, again, greater sun exposure and all that. But that's that's a different issue. Yeah, I've noticed that my sleep has gotten better since I started zone two, because before when I was just focusing on stress, strength and powerlifting, I would, you know, I'd have my rest day and was, well, you don't do anything on a rest day. Your muscles got to recover. And then, <laughs> yeah. you know, since you know, you don't move your body, like your body's like, well, you're not tired. So you're yeah. going to have a crappy night's sleep. But since I've incorporated the zone two, it's since it's low impact, doesn't, doesn't destroy you, but it still tires yeah. you out enough where you can have a good night's sleep. 
Yeah. And it, it's great. Cause one of the other things is also when we're talking about things like, Oh, you know, sleep cycles and the, you know, the super nucleus and melatonin release and, you know, all those things that govern things like your circadian rhythms, being able to engage in an activity that is constantly improving your body's ability to process and dispose of glucose. And, you know, basically undergo a lot of that, you know, process of digestion and metabolic shifts and all of that kind of stuff, it allows the body to go through its normal sleep-wake cycles a lot more smoothly and efficiently. So, you know, you look at a lot of things like uh, decreased sleep latency, you know, the spending less time transitioning between different phases of sleep. All of that is extremely positive, improves your sleep quality, great for sleep architecture, all of those kind of trickle-down effects. Another benefit is I've, I've gotten trimmer since I started Zone 2. Like, I'm not as, yeah. I'm not as, I'm not as fat. Uh, I'm not as chunky as I used to be. <laughs> And it's, what's crazy is it's not hard, right? And it's just, it's, it's weird. I've had to start eating more because uh, yeah. to, to actually gain weight because I'm burning more, like I'm probably burning an extra maybe 1,500 calories a week by adding in zone two. Well, yeah. And that's, that's the other thing that's great about it too, is the whole concept of, you know, kind of caloric flux or metabolic flux, which is the idea that uh, let's say, let's say you just remain isocaloric just by lifting and doing as little activity as possible. Now, let's say I burn 500 calories a day from doing zone two work, but then eat an additional 500 calories a day. All else being equal, the greater the overall caloric or metabolic flux, in other words, the greater the amount that you both burn and take in, the better your body composition is going to be at the end, the end of any given time than it would be otherwise. So one of the best things you can do overall to, to look better and feel better and everything else is move more and eat more to compensate. So metabolic flux, uh, eating more and exercising more is good for body composition. And zone two cardio helps with that because it's a type of exercise that you can do a high volume of and it's not going to beat mm -hmm. you up. Exactly. But is it good for weight loss in any other way? I mean, I think a lot of people might have heard of zone two as the fat burning zone, right? They're at the treadmill right. at their gym. They see, oh, you're in the fat burning zone. Is that an accurate label? And uh, will it help you lose more fat relative to other types of exercise? Yeah. So that's, that's kind of been one of these things that was, uh, I think originally from a, you know, a, a metabolic standpoint is maybe not wrong, but it's really not right either. You know, cause really the, the, when you talk about fat burning zone, you, you have two questions. You're saying, well, okay, am I burning the most fat possible, you know, per minute of activity? And am I burning the biggest proportion of fat compared to other substrates? Because Technically, the highest intensity work you can possibly do burns more fat per minute than any other level of intensity of exercise. I mean, if I go out there and I'm just, you know, sprinting along and, you know, running at uh, peak velocity, I'm probably going to burn more absolute fat overall and use more aerobic systems overall in the course of 10 minutes than I would by going slower. But the problem is there are so many other limiting factors that overall, if that's all I do, I'm probably not going to end up burning that much directly. The, the biggest fat burning zone as far as intensity goes would be if I'm just sitting here lying flat on my back, for example, the percentage of, uh, of, of energy I'm generating via you know, fat oxidation is, is the highest. So zone two kind of represents an aggregate. It is where the percentage of fat is still notably high and the volume you can do is, is the highest. So all else being equal, that's the point at which you know, over the course of a week, I can burn the most fat while not simultaneously not burning out and not working at too high an intensity. But it's kind of meaningless because, you know, fat burning and, and body composition changes so much more than just how much fat you're burning during exercise. 
So I, you know, I think in that regard, it's a bit of a mis, it's a bit of a misnomer. And you know what, if you're, if you're trying to do activity to maximize caloric flux and you're trying to do activity to, you know, burn the most while simultaneously taking in significantly more zone two is probably the only way to really get your caloric flux up high enough, unless you're the kind of person who can spend eight hours on their feet per day, walking around like zone two really does help you maximize your caloric flux. And in that case, it's one of the best for body composition, but just as far as actually being in a fat burning zone, it's, it's not. Uh, you know, it, again, what you burn during exercise isn't necessarily indicative of whole body metabolism or body composition change. Well, another thing I, correct me if I'm wrong on this, uh, I think a lot of times when people hear fat burning zone, they think, well, it's burning the fat on my belly. Yeah. And yeah. not necessarily, I think our body's efficient, uh, getting to that stored fat that takes a lot of work and it's only going to go there when it really needs to. So if you're burning fat in zone two, you're likely just burning the, the fat you've consumed in the past 24 hours. Yeah, and that's that's really it. I think that's that's the the shift people need to to think about in their mind is your body is is going to make use of what energy stores it's going to make use of in whatever order it deems most efficient. It's not going to say, oh, you're in the fat burning zone. Let's immediately ignore all this uh, glucose floating around the system and you know lipid and everything else that's you know in the in the GI tract digesting right now. Let's go straight to the belly. No, it's not going to do that. It's going to use the easiest, most accessible stores for energy. And again, you know, and what we're getting at here is what really taps into that, you know, quote unquote belly fat is when your body decides in its own metabolic calculus that it's time to really tap into those stores from that particular area, which, you know, is going to be so much more a function again of lifestyle, aggregate caloric intake, uh, you know, yeah, a whole host of other things that we could probably spend an hour and a half listing off. Okay. So that makes sense. So zone two can help you lose weight. So it's allow you to exercise, lose body fat because it can help you exercise more. And if over the aggregate, if you do that long enough, your body's going to start dipping into that every now and then to help you shed some of that stuff. Exactly. And you know what? I think the reason why I think it's personally great for body composition changes again, like, you know, like we're talking about, it lets you do so much quality work that has a beneficial effect on your metabolism, has a beneficial effect on mitochondrial profiles, insulin resistance, you know, all of that. It lets you do a lot of it and it still leaves you the recovery you need to do a lot of the especially productive, higher intensity work, the lifting, everything else. And, you know, again, letting you really keep that, uh, you know, caloric flux relatively high. With very low recovery cost. So I think we made a good case that zone two is it's great for cardio health. It's great for your metabolism. It can help with things like, you know, type two diabetes. It can help with sleep. Let's talk about for people who are, you know, they're an athlete. They have like a sport they're trying to focus on. What's the benefit of zone two cardio for endurance athletes? Because this seems counterintuitive for like a guy who likes to do 5Ks or whatever. Like, why would I go really slow if I need to, right. you know, usually you think, well, I need to train fast to go fast. But was, right. what you're saying is like, actually, no, you spend most of your time going slow. How does going slow help us go fast in a meet? Well, I think what's really interesting is, you know, if we're familiar with polarized training, it's the whole idea that you do 80% of your work at zone two and 20% at zone four. So in other words, in your training, you're doing most of it easy and some of it hard. Interestingly enough, a lot of that was arrived at just by observing elite athletes, not by saying, okay, we're going to try this, but by saying, okay, let's see what the elite athletes are doing. And interestingly enough, if you look at the true elites, in many cases, they're doing 85% of their work in their zone two or up to 88% of it in their zone two. But I think what's really interesting is, of course, if you look at their high intensity work, it's the total number of high intensity minutes they're doing per week not the number of high intensity workouts. So just to break that down a little bit, I think when a lot of people think about doing, 
like say an interval workout. They say, okay, I've got a 45 minute interval workout coming up at say 45 minutes of hard intervals in that workout. They're probably only spending about 10 to 15 minutes actually doing hard work. The rest is rest periods. When you're putting together a polarized program, all of that high intensity work, you only count the minutes you're doing high intensity. So I think that's one thing I, I, I want to make sure people know is that when we talk about doing most of it easy, remember that that's still a lot of hard work. So when people think, okay, well, I don't want to go easy if I want to go fast, it's remembering that since the hard work you're doing is so tough, there's no way you can do enough of that to get in the overall quantity and quality of work you want to do. It's a little bit like saying, okay, so to be a good runner, to be a fast runner, I've got to you know, obviously improve running efficiency and leg turnover speed and all these various components of you know, metabolism and all of that. But realizing that zone two allows you to do a tremendous amount of work to, again, improve the number of mitochondria that you have, to improve the amount of fat and, uh, you know, uh, and glucose you can burn aerobically. All of those things are basically increasing the size of your engine and letting you do more of the high-intensity work, which is going to translate to being able to actually do an aggregate, a whole lot more training, a whole lot more quality training, and spend a lot more time developing all those factors in performance that just take a lot of time and volume to develop. It takes a long time to develop the mitochondria to be a good runner. It takes a long time to build up your heart strength to be a good runner. If you're just doing zone three and zone four, you're probably burning yourself out before you can do enough work for those slow adapting energy systems. You're being held back by overall stress. You're being held back by sheer exhaustion and muscle soreness and all of those things. And eventually you burn out. You start to get sleep disruption, all those other things, long before you're actually dosing your heart and mitochondria with the optimal stimulus to be the best they can be. So yeah, that's a good point. The more you do zone two, you're going to get more fit. You'll be able to move faster, but still stay in zone two, right? So it's like, that's what I've noticed. I've had to, as I've done more... As, as I've done zone two for a longer, like I've, I've noticed I have, I have to go faster to actually get yeah, into my exactly. zone two range. And that's why you watch these Kenyan guys. They're like in zone two, but it looks like they're sprinting to you, but yeah. their, their body's like, no, this is actually zone two. Yeah. It's, it's crazy, you know, cause you know, I watch guys like, are you familiar with uh, Alexander Sorokin, the yeah. ultra runner? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, look at the pace he went for a hundred miles. Look at the pace he can do for 24 hours. I mean, <laughs> for him, that's an easy zone too. For for some of us, for I think for a lot of a lot of people listening, it's like, well, that would be a really fast mile pace. So it really does. As we get that incredibly efficient, you know, we we start to get better and better. And again, it increases the density of work we can do as well. You know, because we're recovering faster between intervals. So not only are we getting faster at our zone two, when we decide to then do other work, we can do more of it and recover faster which makes it a more efficient workout. But it's going to take a while to get there. It's like lifting weights. You're not going to yeah. deadlift 600 pounds in a month. It's yeah. to get to that to get that speedy zone 2, it's going to take maybe years to get there. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, it does. And I, I think the the thing that is is people sometimes get impatient with it and they think, "Okay, well, this isn't getting all that much better." But it does. It takes time and as long as it's providing a stimulus, it's doing what you need. Sometimes things just take time. And uh it's not as gratifying as hit where you could just push yourself harder and every week you push yourself a little bit harder. It is so much easier in some ways with hit workouts to just push yourself harder with every week, but not actually be adapting more. You're just adapting yourself to an uncomfortable stimulus. So you're getting better at pushing yourself hard. You're not necessarily improving in your fitness, which is why some people will see themselves hit a wall after six to eight weeks of high intensity training. 
it's because they haven't really been physiologically improving. They've just been improving in their pain tolerance. They've been improving in their familiarity with the movements. So they get better, but they really haven't gotten better as much as they think. They've just gotten better at the task itself. They're not necessarily much fitter. Okay, so if you're an endurance athlete and you, you're going to start zone two, you got to be patient. It's going to seem like you're not doing anything. Like it literally, there might be, if you're just like just doing like the couch to marathon thing, you might just be walking like a fast walk and that's going to be zone two. And that yeah. it's going to be like that for a while, but over time you'll be able to speed up while still maintaining that zone two range. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So we talked endurance athletes what about strength athletes. We mentioned some of the benefits kind of in passing, but let's focus more on that. So you, you came from the strength world, uh, you're a power lifter, you're a big, strong guy. I think you deadlift like 700 pounds, I, I believe. Uh, yeah. 700 yep. pounds. Actually you set a PR this year, so I'm pretty happy. About what was that. your, what was it? Uh, 747.5. Okay. And I say that because the 2.5 fell off the outside. No, that's, that, <laughs> that's dang strong. That's a great poll. Congratulations. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. So like, how does zone two help guys who like to pull 747 pounds? So here's, here's the best thing. And, th- and this is actually the story I always tell because, you know, this was, this was actually a client of mine. He was a, a power lifter, a competitive power lifter, Australian, a very, very strong guy as well. We're talking about a dude who's pulling close to 800 pounds. Uh, you know, he's obviously stronger than I am. It was really funny because I had him doing a lot of zone two work and it wasn't until about six months in, cause he, re- he resisted the process a little bit, but he was a good sport. He always did it. He started taking his bike to and from the gym, you know, just easy cruising and all that. And it was really funny because after six months, he 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 sent me a he sent me a note and he said, you know, I never really thought about some of the benefits this was having besides heart health and everything else, but I noticed when I was going through my squat workout now, I was able to put my knee wraps on for the third set without needing to stop for air and without feeling tired. And I thought that was probably one of the most impactful, relevant things I've ever heard a powerlifter say, because what Zone Two work was allowing him to do was get through his training session and get through all the work he had prescribed with less overall fatigue, which you take any two power lifters or any two strength athletes and tell one of them, look, I can get you to competition day having done 15% more work than everyone else around you at little cost to yourself. What would you say? And most of them, if they know what they're doing, would say, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'd love to be able to do more work. I'd love to be able to program in a little more sport work and a little more high intensity, you know, true power production work without fatiguing. That is one of the biggest, most profound benefits. Again, besides benefits to health and everything else is we're saying that recovery in between every set, your ability to focus and brace yourself for the next set and mentally get yourself keyed up and potentially do more work in the same period of time or to continue doing work without actually letting yourself cool down in between, which can be a real problem for some lifters. You're telling them all you need to do is this 20 to 30 minutes of zone two a couple times a week. It's not going to interfere with your training because it's so low intensity. We're not telling you to go out and do tire flips. I'm telling you to get on the elliptical or the bike for 30 minutes. That's easy. And you tell them this is going to make it so you recover faster in between every single set. And when you do your next set, you're going to be better recovered, feel fresher, and have more energy. So you're going to get more out of it. That is an undeniable advantage of this type of work for any strength athlete. Yeah. So instead of taking an hour and a half to two hours for a training session, it could be an hour, yeah. maybe 45 minutes. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and even then saying like, Hey, you know what? One of the, one of the biggest problems I, th- I think, especially you see this with a lot of uh, older school lifters is say, look, you know, if someone's got to take eight or nine minutes in between sets of squats, it is really, really, you know, between very heavy sets, it's really tough to stay engaged. Your muscles are already cooling down. Your cardiovascular system is working so hard to get all those energy stores back that that is not the most efficient or effective way to do it. You want to be relatively fresh. You want to be able to just go in and bang out that next set with less rest. And you say, okay, look, we're going to reduce that to three or four minutes. You're going to get four quality work sets worth of work done. And that's going to give you time to do a little bit more accessory work. You might be able to do a little bit more foam work. It might even free up more time to do some of that, you know, mobility work that you've been putting off that you skip every single session. So there you go. Yeah, I've noticed that since I started zone two, I don't have to rest as much between sets anymore, which is great. It used yeah. to be like five minutes between a heavy, I can do like three minutes now, which is, it adds up. It really does. It really does. I mean, especially when you're talking about a lot of athletes, a lot of strength athletes when they're training, it's like, hey, you're not eating, you're not resting, you're not doing anything else in that time. You're literally, this is just creating new minutes in your day for you, which I mean, that's great. And yes, of course, there's the cost of actually getting on the bike, but we're talking about quality work time. Okay. So if you're into strength training, uh, zone two cardio can give you better quality workouts in a shorter amount of time. So then you can do other stuff like, you know, accessory work if you're more competitive or if that's just something you want to do, or, you know, it can just be just a way to get some time back for whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what I like about it. Like my workouts are shorter now. Yeah. I mean, as you say, I mean, you have to, you have to add the time in for doing zone two cardio into your schedule, but it's nice not to have your, you know, your weightlifting workouts, you know, have to stretch on and on. Right. Uh, another benefit I found in my strength training from starting zone two, and I don't know, I, this is just completely anecdotal. This is in one scientific experiment on <laughs> Brett, but it's helped with uh, some injuries that I've had, like especially tendon injuries. Mm-hmm. It's just nice to get there and get some blood flowing because like the tendons yeah. are, they're not a vascular tissue. There's not a lot of blood going to there. So the more you can get there, to it, it helps that recovery process. Yeah. And, you know, and actually any modality you do, there's of course, you know, bone remodeling and tendon remodeling and all of that kind of stuff is a slow process. And of course, even non-impact zone two represents some sort of additional, you know, stressor on the bones and tendons and everything else that strengthens them over time, potentially in ways that strength training doesn't. So yeah, overall, you're going to be more robust. So we talked about the benefits and say someone's listening to this, like they're like, I want to do this. How much zone two cardio do we need to get the maximum benefits of it? Like what's the minimum effective dose? And, you know, I tell people anything more than 30 minutes a week, they're going to see some. I tell most people, look, hey, if you can start out at 80 minutes a week, you're in good shape. Now, the recommendations go all the way up to 180, which sounds like a lot. But, I mean, if you break that into 45-minute sessions, it's not that crazy. But I basically tell people, look, if you can do three 25- to 30-minute sessions per week to start, you are already getting a lot of the benefits out of that. Gotcha. That is... I mean, talking about minimum effective dose, if you can't make time to do that, I, I don't know what to tell you, but that is literally all you need to start. Any advice for strength athletes? Because I think they might be, because they're so indoctrinated thinking, well, cardio is going to get in the way of recovery and gains. How do you like to incorporate zone two into your strength athletes programming? I, I literally tell them, look, do it, do this at the end of one of your sessions. Um, you know, if you want to, you know, pound a, you know, a protein shake or anything else beforehand, go for it. But the, the thing I'll typically tell them is make sure you use a modality that you're comfortable with. Don't think you have to run. Don't think you have to bike. Don't think you have to do anything. Find some modality that you feel like you can do comfortably. It can even be the elliptical. In fact, I'm a, I'm a pretty big fan of that piece of equipment because 
It's so low impact, you are not fatiguing any muscle that you're otherwise using. You're not going to interfere with anything because it's so different. You want to do something that at the end of a session, you feel like, okay, this isn't really a stressor. So I'll tell them, look, hop on the bike, hop on elliptical, you know, do the stepper, do whatever you want and don't hesitate to mix it up because the modality matters much less than what your heart rate is doing each time or what your heart is doing each time and, you know, what your muscles are demanding. So don't be wed to the idea that you have to do this or you have to run or you have to do anything. It's all good. Yeah, for me, the way I've done it is I train Monday, Tuesday, strength train. Wednesday mm-hmm. is off day. So that's I do an hour of zone two then. And then Thursday, Friday, strength train. And then I got, on one of those days, I'll do hit. Like I'll do this yeah. bike, just all out or some sort of body circuit. Then Saturday, Sunday, it's an hour of zone two on each of those days. So I get three hours. Yeah. I try to get three that's hours. That's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, honestly for, for a lot of people, that's the ideal structure right there. I mean, again, quote, some people quote unquote, love a day off. I, I personally don't. I like to do something every day, but yeah, I mean, the way you've got it laid out and that's the nice thing about it is since it's really so easy to recover from, it's not like your Monday workout is going to be tough because you did, you know, an hour of easy work on Sunday. I mean, Humans are meant to be able to do an hour of easy work on a given day, not pay for it. So it's, it, yeah, it's actually a good thing. And yeah, but if you can't get an hour, that's okay. Shoot for 25, 30 minutes, three times a week, maybe. Absolutely. Absolutely. I always tell people that some is better than none. You know, if you've got a, an aspiring power lifter who says, look, I can, I can give you two 20 minute sessions per week. Is that even enough? The answer is yes, absolutely. It is. You're going to see a difference. I think the hardest part for me starting zone two, because I, I wanted to shoot for an hour. I've read that like, you know, I want to get that the maximum benefits. I'm, I like to maximize things, but it's just boring. And so yeah. you got you got to find something to do. So what I've done is I watched uh, Cobra Kai. Mm-hmm. I got the yep. Cobra Kai on Netflix, and now I'm rewatching Thirty Rock while I do my Zone Two. See, and it's I, been great. Honestly, that's perfect because you know because I, I on, on when I do Zone Two, I will I'll sometimes play uh, video games. I sometimes do my Instagram Q and As when I'm sitting on the bike, just because it forces me to stay in the talk test. Yeah, doing something that you know kind of. Gets you a little bit, a little bit out of your head. Uh, makes it a little bit less painful, uh, you know. I mean, like psychologically painful for some people, and that's all good. And that's actually one of the things I look forward to. Is I also say, look, this sixty minutes that I'm doing this, this is me time. I can do whatever the heck else I want during this time. I don't, ha- I don't have to do anything because you know I'm, I'm doing, I'm training, I'm doing something that's good for my heart. Whatever else I want to do at this time, that's great. This can even just be my sixty minutes of quiet meditation time. It's perfect. Or you can listen to the Art of Manliness podcast. Absolutely. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Highly recommend. Yeah, I mean, like you, I, I really look forward to Zone 2 Cardio now because I just like how I feel afterwards. You get that sweat going. It just feels really good. It's the only time I give myself to watch TV. So yeah, I, I really enjoy it. So you mentioned modalities. It's basically anything to get your heart going, um, but are there any ones that you like a lot? So for me, I actually, I, I still have my uh, triathlon bike hooked up on a trainer. The reason why I love the bike for me is I've been cycling long enough that I'm a, I'm a, I'm a pretty good cyclist. And for me, that's an easy way to get my, uh, to get, to get into the zone two. And, you know, on the stationary bike, I can do plenty of other things. That's always been one of my favorites. Um, I love air bikes and air dines just because you don't have to push particularly hard to get into zone two because it's so many different muscle groups working at once. And honestly, one of my biggest recommendations is the elliptical, which I think gets unfairly maligned by a lot of people. But it is a, if, provided you find an elliptical that fits your body size, 
because they they have a lot of different sizes and shapes and they're not great for everybody. It's a great piece of equipment. Yeah, I do. I use the ellipticals when I like. We also have an incline treadmill, so I just crank that up as high as you can, and then I go going like I think the speed is like three point five, and that will get me at zone two. The one thing that I I had trouble with when I first started experimenting with zone two is I tried just like running outside. I noticed I, I would immediately get into zone three, like without, I wasn't oh, yeah. even going that fast. And I would be like, oh, I, I have to walk. And then yeah. it was just off and on. So I, I, based on my experience, I wouldn't recommend outdoor running because it's just so easy to move into zone three. What are your thoughts about that? You know, honestly, I, I totally agree. I do a lot of VT1 tests for new clients and most of them, you know, I'll, I'll set the treadmill to 4% and they will and they will be hitting that zone two long before they get to a run. And that's, that's totally, totally normal. It takes quite a few years actually to be an efficient enough runner, unless you're very light. It takes a lot of years to be efficient enough that you can comfortably run, uh, you know, as opposed to even just kind of shuffle jogging at zone two. So yeah, that's that's very normal, and that's why uh, same thing. Honestly, if, if people are saying, "Look, I I would love to be able to just go out and go for a run, or you know, go run some trails or something," if it gets me out of zone two, okay, well, look, hey, if you love it, you can still do it, but that's not zone two. I would recommend something else. And also, if you're a strength athlete, that that's a stressor because you do your pounding against the ground, yeah. and you know that might absolutely. Not be One recommendation I have this came from my wife with her experiment with zone two cardio with running is if you're just starting out with running and you want to do that zone two, like do it on a treadmill. Yeah. And she found that useful because you can set the treadmill flat. You can keep it at a slow, constant speed. Yeah. And she said, even then you'll have to stop and walk. Cause you know, pretty, you know, you'll quickly go into zone three and oh, have yeah. to walk. Yep. But she, she found that just by doing that steadily, that the treadmill run, she was able to get to a zone two run outside eventually. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because one of the, one of the biggest challenges of course is with zone two, being able to work up that threshold, that VT1 threshold, if all you do is run outside and push yourself too hard every single time, you are really going to burn yourself out probably at a faster rate than you're going to make all the progress you want. You'll see great progress for eight weeks, 12 weeks, but you may end up hitting a wall and you may end up really struggling. Uh, you may be struggling to get in the volume that you know you need. You may be struggling to you know have energy for your lifting sessions and everything else. So that's when it really becomes critical to say, oh, wait, maybe I should have slowed down here quite a bit. And uh, treadmill is great because, uh, you know, contrary to, to some to the belief in some circles, the mechanics are not appreciably different than running outside. You know, the basically, if you look at it from a biomechanics standpoint, there are very, very minor differences. And overall, like you're saying, it really lets you control that throttle. And it takes some of the, I guess, self-imposed pressure. Uh, when people are outside, it, it's very often difficult to realize how slow a, you know, 12, 30 minute mile jog may be. Or, you know, keep yourself doing that walk run and not overcook it. It's it's difficult. You said like hills up and down. And also people just don't like going out and moving slowly. You know, they're thinking, okay, either I'm going to walk or I'm going to run fast. I'm not going to do this sort of walk, jog, slow moving, looking at my watch to making sure I'm not, you know, to make sure I'm not going too fast. It's uh, again, as, as throttle control, it is such a, such a great tool to use. And yeah, absolutely. Like if people really are, are serious about this and, you know, they want to say, okay, well, I want to do this right. Yeah. The treadmill may not be the most exciting option, but you know, especially now it's, it's, it probably, depending on the time of year, it could be even preferable to going outside and it's, it's worth getting used to it because it also very much teaches pacing, which is something I think a lot of people have trouble with. So it gets that in your head. It lets you control your pace, control your output, provide some valuable lessons, and it can in some ways help you make more sustainable progress. So that's a great tool. And then another thing she noticed with her running in zone two cardio is that she even got the benefit 
to her running by doing zone two and other modalities. Like if she just did a walk on an incline treadmill for her zone two, she saw that transfer over to her race times. They would dramatically drop and she got a lot faster. Yeah. Yeah. And it's great. Yeah. Cause I, I think the the other thing is with zone two, again, it's, there's much more transfer between modalities than a lot of the higher intensity work. So yeah, again, you know, walking, hiking, rucking, cycling, you know, even elliptical, all those things do have pretty good carryover and uh, represent a good way to vary the direct, I guess, cost and stressors while maintaining most of the stimulus. So we, we've talked a lot about zone two. What about like, is there a place for zone three in your training at all? If you're like an endurance athlete or just a weekend warrior type guy? Yeah. So, you know, there've been a lot, there are actually a lot of very good training programs that are called kind of sweet spot training where you spend a good 30 or more percent of your time in zone three, which is, you know, a little bit more usual. Like it's, it's a valid form of training. I think the important thing to remember though, is that if you are also a strength athlete, first of all, zone three work, it's neither the most efficient way to develop a lot of those like speed systems or, you know, higher intensity energy systems, nor the lower intensity energy systems that zone two does just because you can't do nearly as much of it. If you are aiming to train for a 5K or a 10K or aiming for a triathlon, it's worth spending some time in that zone three, doing things like tempo runs, tempo rides, et cetera. Interestingly enough, though, when you look at polarized programs, which is, again, just zone two and then high intensity and sweet spot programs, which are zone two, zone three and high intensity, the outcomes are almost the same, but what shifts things in favor of zone two is a lower likelihood of injury and a lower likelihood of burnout or overtraining. So you certainly can do it. And I think if you are a, if you are a newer runner and you're looking to do something like uh, you want to get a good 5K time or something else, it's probably worth spending some time there just to get used to what it's like pushing yourself for a 20-minute period at that zone three. Um as it stands, though, it's a little bit like saying, okay, I'm a strength athlete and, you know, I want to do, you know, heavy singles, doubles and triples, you know, that has its role and hypertrophy work has its role. But what about doing sets of six with three reps in reserve? You're going, well, there's a training effect to it. It's just not really optimal for anything. You can do it, but it's not the best answer to any training question you could ask. That's the way I look at it. What about zone four slash five training? What's your take on that? Yeah, honestly, doing, you know, if you're, if you are just a strength athlete and you're just doing this for health, I would argue you don't have to do that kind of work. As long as you're doing some kind of basic strength training or anything else, or even like calisthenics, body weight training, anything else, I would argue you don't need to do that if your only concern is health. If your concern is performance, you do need to spend some time you know, anywhere between 12 and 20% of your time in those higher range systems, because those do improve a lot of those, you know, actually shorter term energy systems and things like intramuscular coordination and all parts of those things that truly potentiate that base you're building. So if you don't do those, you're going to be holding yourself back. But again, the nice thing about all of this is, is it really only takes a dedicated period of six to eight weeks to absolutely max out your higher, your higher intensity adaptations. In other words, if you've been doing nothing but zone two and you go, I wonder how much fitness I've built. Let me start doing some high intensity stuff. If you do a good amount of solid high intensity work for six to eight weeks, you'll see your potential. No, I think if you played like football in high school, you saw how quickly you can get like quote unquote in shape, right? Cause you're just doing like wind sprints like all summer and then uh, yeah, you're in shape and then you can see how quickly it goes away. (laughs) 
if you just stop it, uh, it <laughs> yeah. goes away really fast. <laughs> yep. Exactly. Yeah, so yeah, for me, I, for like zone four, I'll do two sessions a week and they're short. It's like I, no more than six minutes where I'm kind of doing like maybe an airdyne circuit, uh, you know, yeah. 60 seconds on really hard, 20 seconds rest, like four or five times. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. I tell people that's, that's, that's fine for, you know, 99% of us are going to realize most of the benefits from it, from that. So yeah, that's, that's, that's the way I go with it. Well, Alex, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about your work? Yeah. So uh, best place is I'm on Instagram at alex.viata, or they can look up our complete human performance Instagram, which got links to all our sites, educational materials, coaching. You can find my book, the hybrid athlete there, which, oh my God, it's at this point, it's getting on close to eight years old, I think, and thinking about writing a new version of it uh, now that hybrid training has gotten so big. But I would be, uh, you know, again, old book still has a lot of info on it. So yeah, that would be the places to check me out. Awesome. Well, Alex Viata, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Brett, thank you so much. Real pleasure was all mine. My guest today was Alex Viata. He's the founder of Complete Human Performance. You can find more information about his work at his website, completehumanperformance.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash zone two where you find links, including a link to an in-depth article that we wrote about Zone 2 Cardio, the science behind it, the benefits, and how to do it. Check that out, aom.is slash zone 2. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives, as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLIUS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS, and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. Remind you to listen to the podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.